0: I had bad eyes, but I stubbornly refused to believe it for some time. So my eyes really that were bad, this issue of stubborn disbelief and of poor eyes that won't see properly and respond rightly to the evidence right in front of our faces. Well, that is at the heart of these verses that we're coming to in Luke this morning. Jesus is continuing on the road to Jerusalem where he knows he will go and die as God's savior king for us. And he's been calling people along the road to follow him as that king. They've witnessed the incredible works that only God could do that he's been doing. They've heard his great wisdom that he can even know the hearts of men, what no mere man could do. In fact, you might recall if you were here with us last week, just earlier in this chapter, we saw Jesus healing a mute man who in his case had been possessed by a demon and we saw Jesus is the stronger man as he released that man from his captivity. He alone can overpower the strong man, Satan, and break his grip of sin and death on our world otherwise lost. But then we saw the response of the crowds, didn't we, of Jesus' observers who, who witnessed that great work. Have a look back in verse 15. Verse 15. This is how some responded. Some said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And we saw Jesus' response to that absurd accusation, how a a house divided cannot stand. We saw his response last Sunday. And if you missed that, you're welcome to go to our website and listen to the sermon from last week. But then there were others, again in verse 16, and this is how they responded, others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And Jesus is now responding in our verses today to these sign seekers who just insist on him doing more signs. Our first point, not enough evidence. That's basically what these guys are saying. Show us a wonderful, miraculous work, Jesus. Show us a sign because we haven't seen enough. And Jesus' response to them is in verse 29. The crowds were increasing. He began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. It seeks for a sign. Well, Jesus is really blunt here, isn't he? As the crowds are building up, as more people are are, are coming, having heard about him, he's not exactly a crowd-pleaser, is he? He says, you are evil. You are evil. You are wicked for demanding a sign of power from me. Now, let's just be clear on what Jesus doesn't mean here. He doesn't mean you're evil to simply ask for evidence of his lordship in and of itself. He's not saying, look, unless you believe on me blindly without even looking into the evidence, you're evil. He's not saying that. For those of us who have been with us for a while, we've seen since the opening chapters of Luke, Jesus has been giving plenty of evidence for his lordship. He's calmed storms, he's raised the dead, he's forgiven the sins of men, only that which God can do, and then backed it up by healing them of incurable diseases, as again, only God could do. No, Jesus isn't saying here that simply asking for evidence in the first place, that's evil maybe you aren't a Christian here this morning it's great to have you here with us maybe you're just starting out in a Christianity Explored group you've just started looking into the evidence for the Christian faith can I encourage you, do keep going do keep going the Christian faith is rational and it can be scrutinized it can stand up under intense investigation and it wouldn't be worth believing in if it couldn't no, Jesus is fine with us genuinely assessing the claims for who he is, our Lord and King. But that's not these guys, not this crowd. They're not new to Jesus or his works. They've Remember, what have they just seen? They've just seen Jesus deliver a mute man from his muteness by casting a demon out of him. They've heard the eyewitness accounts from their friends, and now they're gathering to Jesus themselves. They've heard from their neighbors. These guys, they know the evidence. They've seen the signs. And so they've heard Jesus' call in the light of them to turn from their sin and receive him as their king. But they keep resisting. No, they won't bow their knee to Jesus. They just say, more evidence, please. More evidence Jesus even though they've had plenty they wickedly insist on more and Jesus is clear uh, he's not going to do miracles for the sake of these hardened critics see what he says in verse 29 no sign will be given to it to them except the sign of Jonah for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh so will the Son of Man be to this generation Now, what is this sign of Jonah? Hopefully a good number of us remember the story of Jonah because we covered it a few years ago on our church camp at Smago. But for those of us who weren't there or aren't so familiar, Jonah was a prophet who was called by God to go and speak to the wicked people of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Israel's worst enemy in Jonah's time, the Assyrians. And Jonah really, really didn't want to go. He really didn't want to go and preach to this wicked enemy in case they might actually repent and receive mercy from God. They're a wicked enemy. I don't want to see them survive. And so Jonah, he runs the other way as far as he possibly could, but God won't let him run. And so Jonah ends up in the sea. And in God's sovereignty, a great fish swallows Jonah for three days and then vomits him out on dry land. And then Jonah finally, having learned his lesson, he goes and he preaches to the Ninevites. And Jesus is saying here that these guys, they're not going to receive any sign but the sign of Jonah. Jonah. In Matthew's gospel, he makes it clear that sign that's referring to his own death and resurrection. Just as Jonah died, as it were, in the belly of the fish, there for three days and rose again as he kind of vomited out onto dry land. Well, so Jesus knew he would literally die. He would be buried and he would rise again three days later. And so it might be jesus is saying i'm not going to perform any more miracles for you guys i'm just going to go i'm going to die and rise again and if that's not enough to convince you nothing will that might be it but there are others who note that just in these immediate verses luke says nothing else about jesus's death and resurrection so it might be he's not referring so much to that He's simply identifying himself with the prophet Jonah as a prophet. Jonah preached. That's all he really did. He just preached to the Ninevites. And so Jesus is going to be like Jonah in that sense. I'm a preacher. That's what I'm primarily doing. And so you're not going to get anything more from me in the way of miraculous signs. You're just going to hear my word and respond whichever way you want. Either way, the meaning is still clear. He's saying to these stubborn critics, you have had enough. You've had plenty of evidence. The evidence, that's not the issue. Bertrand Russell, one of the most popular atheistic philosophers in the last century, he was asked before he died, look, let's say once once you've died and you do come face to face with your creator, what are you going to say to the God that you denied all your life? And Bertrand Russell replied, I'd say to God, not enough evidence. Not enough evidence. And Jesus says here to these crowds, sorry, no. You can't use that excuse in the end. And if you try to use that excuse to deny Christ and deny God, not enough evidence, well, then there will be prosecuting witnesses brought against you on the final day. And Jesus introduces us to them here. For those who say, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. Well, here are the witnesses for the prosecution. We have the first one in verse 31. 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. This is the same queen of the south that we did see in our Old Testament reading. And yet most of us, I imagine, know her by her more popular name, the queen of Sheba. Sheba. She is from ancient Sheba in southern Arabia, kind of modern-day Yemen for us today. Uh, And again, south, it's a good 2,000 kilometers south of Jerusalem where Solomon was and where he reigned. And yet she heard, she simply heard from such a distance of the wisdom of Solomon what God had granted to him as his king. And so despite being the ruler of a nation, imagine how busy she would have been, she chooses to travel all that way on the basis of a rumor just so that she can hear of this great wisdom, this God-given wisdom from Solomon. And even by the, the fastest camel, that would have taken many weeks. But she does it, travels all that way to simply benefit from God's wisdom through Solomon. And Jesus says, this queen, this queen is going to speak against those who say not enough evidence on the final day. Verse 31, Jesus says, For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Queen Sheba is going to say to these stubborn believers, Look, I simply heard a rumor about the wisdom of God's king Solomon, and I traveled from what was considered the ends of the earth to hear You people of Jesus' day, well, he's traveling through your neighborhoods. He's on your doorstep. You don't have to really put any effort into to, to hear him and to hear his words. And unlike Solomon, as wise a king as he was, he was nothing compared to the living word of God made flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ, God's wisdom personified as the living word of God. Oh, Solomon could speak very wisely into affairs of state and, and Queen Sheba tested him. She was in awe at how well he could do that. But Jesus alone can speak into the matters of eternal life and mean it. Jesus alone can say, to know life with God, you come to me. To know forgiveness of sins, you come to me. To know rest now and forevermore, you come to me. He alone knew the thoughts of men's hearts. Solomon couldn't do that. So the queen of Sheba, she responded wisely to God's far lesser wisdom through Solomon. And yet these crowds, they will not respond rightly when they have the living word of God in front of them. But she's not the only witness brought against them. Look in verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah Is here. Jesus brings us back to Jonah, to his ministry, and the fact that, like the Queen of Sheba, well, the people of Nineveh, they also made a wise response to God's word. And like the Queen of Sheba, they responded on the basis of having far less than the crowds of Jesus' day. You know, some have described Jonah as the most effective prophet of the Old Testament. He went to the great city of Nineveh. The biggest, greatest metropolis of his day, he spoke one simple message, basically repent or you are doomed. And the entire population of the city, from the king on his throne to the beggar on the street, within three days they repent, they don sackcloth, and they beg God for mercy. And so these men will condemn the stubborn unbelievers of Jesus' day who've, again, they've heard far greater than the preaching of Jonah. Again, on the mouth of Christ, God's word of salvation. And yet, with hardened and heart, they resist. They insist on saying, not enough evidence, Jesus, just give us a sign. Just thinking for us first as believers, as Christians, we are in so much more a privileged position than the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, or than even the crowds of Jesus' day. Because we have this, the word of God, the whole word of God for his world, testifying to his son in a language that we understand. The queen of Sheba traveled weeks and took time out of a very busy schedule to hear a far lesser wisdom from Solomon. Solomon. Just for us as believers, are we prioritizing opportunities just to sit under this life-giving Word of God? Great to see us all here this morning. That's encouraging. Do get to a growth group if you can, but what about in our daily lives, if this really is going to be Christ's rule for us as His people? You know, I, I admit, since the beginning of 2017, I've wavered already. You know, we're we're halfway through February, and I'm already wavering in my desire to be feeding on this word each day, to to be listening to my Lord in whom I can have life. But I have found hours and hours to watch HBO and AXN. (laughs) Friends, let's not have a weaker passion for Christ and his word than the Queen of Sheba or the Ninevites who had so, so less. And yet they listened and they responded faithfully. It's a challenge for us as God's people this morning. But I imagine there will be some of us here this morning who would not count ourselves believers in Christ. Even though we know ourselves that we've seen the evidence for some time now, that we're resisting that decision to entrust ourselves to Christ as Lord. We just keep on saying, no, I want to see more. I want to see more. I want to have more evidence. I want to have more evidence. And we're using that as an excuse not to bow the knee and though life in Christ's name. And these prosecutors are a particular challenge for you this morning. They had far less, and they responded wisely in repentance and faith. You know, this stubborn excuse, there wasn't enough evidence, it will not stand on the day God judges us. And Jesus makes that even clearer in the rest of these verses. The problem is not the evidence for his lordship, but it's how we in our hearts choose to respond to it. God's light is shining bright. Have a look with me in verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see by the light. Now, my interior design skills are appalling. That's a bit of an understatement, really. You can ask my wife, Melissa, how little I care about the state of our place. Andy Woodliffe, who shared a few weeks ago, he's not the only one who has a problem about not caring about mopping the floor enough, despite how his wife feels about it. And yet, even though I'm not great with interior design, even I, when we first moved back to KL, when we first went down to IKEA, and got some new lighting for the lounge. Even I knew that once we got that lighting home, it needed to be installed somewhere out in the open so that it could actually give light to that which would be dark at night. If Melissa had caught me installing the lights into the cupboard in the kitchen, well, things could have got quite tense rather quickly. No one switches on a light and then intentionally conceals it. It's meant to illuminate that which would otherwise be dark. You can't conceal it. And that's the simple point that Jesus is making, first of all, but it has profound implications for us. You see, the light here, it does refer to him. Elsewhere, Jesus uses the imagery in the Gospels of the light being those who would follow him, how we are to be salt and light unto the earth. But here, the light is Christ himself, God's light for our world otherwise lost in the darkness of sin. Again, we saw a powerful example of that, didn't we, last week? That that demon-possessed man in the grip of the bond of darkness. and No ability to even speak with his own tongue. It was an extreme example of the fact that our world, for the most part, lives still in spiritual darkness, away from God, under his judgment under the power of sin and death, all stemming from the fact, as we saw earlier, that we have turned away from our Creator. We've accepted that lie. We can rule ourselves and live independently from Him, live life as we see fit. And so our world is dark to God. It's dark to the life that we were made to know in relationship with Him. And yet Jesus, as the light, He changes everything. He speaks a word, and that demon-possessed man is delivered in a moment. His bondage to darkness is broken. He is the light who has broken into the darkness, and he has not been hidden away. You know, Jesus didn't do his ministry in a corner. No, his light is shining brightly, both then towards the crowds and now to us today in the testimony of his word. God has switched the light on. And it's shining bright in his son. Again, the evidence isn't in question, but Jesus points us to this much deeper issue, check your eyes. Check your eyes. Verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Jesus says the issue is with our eyes. He now describes them as the lamp of the body. Because when our eyes are working properly, we do see everything by them, right? That's very important in KL, as I've experienced myself, when you're coming to cross a road. If our eyes are healthy, then they tell us that that crazy biker coming from that direction is going to run the red light and take us out at 90 miles an hour. Let's wait, and let's die another day. Or at least that's what's supposed to happen. Our eyes perceive what is real, and then we respond appropriately. But now Jesus refers to these bad eyes. And actually the word there for bad is literally in the Greek evil. Evil eyes. He's not speaking primarily about physical blindness here, but a culpable, intentional blindness, a refusal to see him for who he is and respond rightly. In a completely different circumstance, I experienced something like this the other night. Melissa and I were having dinner at one of our favorite restaurants in KL, and it was a very, very busy evening in the restaurant, and so we were waving frantically to get the waiter's attention, and they were doing that little trick, you know that little trick where They've got too many people, basically, to serve. The, the restaurant's packed, and you know you've got their attention. You know that they've seen you, but the second they do, they, they just kind of look away into the distance. And they pretend, no, 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 they haven't really caught my eye. It's not that they can't see you. They can see you. They, they, they know you're there, but they choose not to because they're just so busy. And they've got five other people to serve before you. Now, friends, that's understandable in a busy restaurant, and I do feel for these waiters and how hard they work to keep us fed. But it is far more serious when we deliberately choose not to look to Christ and his light. And if we persist in disbelief, in denying him, again, the issue is not him. The issue is us. It's a deep down wrongful desire to remain in the darkness of sin, away from God, away from life with him, away from his reign. And so the first question we should be asking ourselves this morning is, are you still in darkness? Are you still in darkness? And maybe for you that is what's preventing you from bowing the knee. Because you know who Christ is, but you know that to receive him as Lord, that means turning away and leaving the darkness of sin. Maybe that means giving up the hopes of a particular relationship that you know will not work with Christ as Lord or facing the displeasure of family and friends whom you love and respect who will not be happy with with you taking Christ as Lord. And we are more fearful or more concerned to experience those things than the condemnation that will come for sin that we'll face in the end without Jesus as King. It's not a lack of evidence. That's not keeping us from Him. We're just being deliberately blind about it refusing to acknowledge the signs. Maybe that's the issue for us. And yet Jesus addresses another barrier to faith in him here. In verse 35, to to some in the crowds, he says, Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Lest the light in you be darkness. It seems that many in the crowds thought they were full of light, that they could see clearly that they were living wisely in the light of God's will, even as they rejected Jesus as his son. Because many of the religious stab- establishment of Jesus today, they were part of this crowd. And Jesus knew their hearts as only he could. He knew they were very sure of themselves, that they had God's law, they were considered upstanding moral people from society's perspective, they were dedicated to their religious service. And yet, friends, you can have all those things You can know your Bible. You can live a good life by society's standards. You can come to smack every morning on a Sunday. And Jesus says, be careful, you can still be full of darkness. Lost without God. Without hope in his kingdom to come. Because being full of light and living wisely with God as our God, it's not a question of mere religion of following a bunch of rules or meeting a specific moral standard, being full of light means seeing Jesus' light and responding to him. It means seeing him clearly and taking his word seriously. And that will mean admitting there is actually nothing we can do to deal with our sin before God. That our good works are filthy rags before him, stained by the rebellion of our sin that keeps us from him a rebellion that we can't ever hope to make up to god in our own lives and yet wonderfully jesus alone has paid the price by his body by his blood able to wash us clean in every way why he's going to jerusalem to die to save sinners who cannot save themselves have you opened your eyes to his light and allowed it to expose your sin and your need for him, and so trusted on him and him alone to save you, our every sin washed by his blood, our every need met in his love. If not, then Jesus says, compassionately to you, you are still full of darkness. Don't refuse Christ's light. It is our only hope to truly see and live. And for those of us who have received his light, well, the question is different. Is that light still shining bright in our lives? Are we, as it were, bright with light? See what he says to those who have received his light in verse 36. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Now, this isn't to say as we receive Christ's light, we have all the answers as Christians, that we can see everything, having come to faith in Him. We, we still live with daily concerns, don't we? We, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, we're not sure how that exam might work out or whether we'll get the job for that interview that we're taking. We don't know where we might be living next year, or whether we'll get married or not, and these are anxieties that do weigh on our hearts. You know, we have many concerns as Christians that we we don't have clear answers for. And yet even so, if we are full of Christ's light, if we've let him in as our Lord, we have assurance in that which matters most. We're no longer full of darkness, full of doubt, full of worry, with no answers to the really big questions that matter. Who am I? What is my purpose? Where am I ultimately heading? Because as those who have come to Christ's light, we can rejoice to know that whatever comes tomorrow, our identity, our purpose, our future as God's people, they are all secure in Him. Because friends, we know who's on the throne and we know we're loved by Him. And we know that he'll never forsake us, not even in death. I wonder, do you know this joy as closely as you once did when you first believed on Christ, having received his light? You know, there's a danger for us who have been Christians for some time that our joy in him diminishes. And we stop seeing him so clearly. We're slow to live by the light of his word, and the usual reason for it, often than not, is compromise. That we've slowly but surely started to turn our eyes away from Jesus, and we've started looking elsewhere for hope and meaning and purpose. Maybe some of us today, we know we are compromising in serious ways, sexually, materially, relationally and we're effectively closing our eyes to Christ. And we are fixing them more and more on the darkness of our world. We're starting to be enticed by that lie again, sin is better, sin will deliver, and it never will. And friends, if if you know that struggle so closely today, would you share it with someone who you trust here as part of the church family? So that we can be the family that God's given us to be to one another here at SMAC, supporting, encouraging, safeguarding one another, pointing each other back to the light that is Christ, where life and peace and rest can be found. And as we do that, we can look forward together to the day when his light will be upon all our world in a way that no one can deny. And he will make all things new. You know, the darkness of sin that we struggle with now, it will be over. The tragedy of death that we know so painfully, that will be gone. And friends, we who have received Christ's light, who have depended on him and so walked by his words, we will live in his eternal light at peace in every way forevermore. And so, friends, in the light of these verses, keep looking to Christ, who is your light and is your life this week. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you indeed are the light of the world, who has broken into the darkness. Father, thank you that in your grace you have given us as believers eyes to see Christ, to receive his light, to admit our sin, to trust on him. I pray for those of us who are still resisting his light, that you would graciously work to humble us, that we would respond in repentance and faith and know life in Christ. Pray for us who have seen and responded to his light wisely that we would continue looking to it and walking by it and prizing the future that we have in him. We commit ourselves into your hands in his name. Amen.